This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Bibles, turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we are continuing our series of studies in the Lord's Prayer as a part of our series of studies in the Sermon on the Mount. Today we'll be looking at verse 12, but uh, let's read verses 7 through 15. Hear the Word of God. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let us pray. Father, your word is truth. We pray that you would sanctify us by the truth of your word. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would have full sway over our minds, our hearts, our wills to instruct us, to teach us, Lord, by the scriptures in this important subject of forgiveness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been studying the Lord's Prayer together, uh, each petition, uh, giving, giving a, a full sermon to each petition. The purpose is that we would get a sense of how much there really is here, uh, that as we pray the Lord's Prayer together, it would be with an increased sense of the meaning of what it is we're saying, what we're praying when we recite that prayer together. We do pray it as a prayer, but as we've noted, Jesus said, pray like this. didn't say pray this. He said, pray like this. And this is, in fact, a template or a pattern for how we ought to pray in our own lives. It doesn't mean that we need slavishly each time to follow this outline, although certainly you could do that. Nothing wrong with that. But rather, Jesus is conveying to us major headings or categories that are areas that we ought to cover regularly in our prayer lives. Maybe not necessarily every time we pray, uh, but certainly if we pray for any extended time, we might want to make sure that we have covered the various headings that are here. We saw that the first petitions of the prayer have to do with God's concerns, with the name of God, the kingdom of God, the will of God, all of these, God's name honored, his kingdom coming as, as the gospel spreads throughout the world, culminating with Jesus' return, uh, and God's will, his plans, his purposes being done in the world 
uh, certainly among his people, but in all the nations, uh, even as God's word is obeyed promptly and gladly in heaven. That these, these three petitions come first, which does indicate to us that there is a priority there. And far too often our priority includes only our own concerns without praying for these larger, God-focused, kingdom-oriented concerns. And so as we examine our own prayer lives, we need to go back and say, do I spend time praying for the honor of God's name in the world and in my own life? Do I spend time praying for the kingdom to come? And that can take many forms. Praying for a neighbor who is not a believer. Praying for Moises Zapata, as we did this morning, uh, and so forth. And uh, certainly praying that God's will would be done in my own life, that it would be done in my family, that it would be done in our church, that it would be done uh, throughout the world. So we need to examine our prayers and the way we pray and ask if we are addressing these kingdom concerns. But as we saw, the second three, the second set of three petitions have to do with us and with our needs. And they began, we saw last week, with a very mundane, down-to-earth petition. Give us this day our daily bread. So immediately, uh, God instructs us, Jesus instructs his disciples and us here to pray for, to ask God for those daily necessities that we need, down to the very food that we eat, shelter, clothes, various needs that we have in this world. Uh, God is not above those things, so to speak. God is very much concerned with our bodies and providing for what we need physically. Well, the second petition in the, in the second group of three has to do with another need of ours. Last, last week, what we saw uh, the need for daily uh, physical provision. Uh, here, the need for forgiveness. And, the, and it raises a larger question of the role that forgiveness plays in the Christian life. And so, as we look at verse 12, we want to look at it in terms of two needs, two needs, that this verse addresses. Before we start looking at that, however, it's worth noting that this is the only petition here in Matthew in the Lord's Prayer that receives follow-up treatment, that receives additional explanation. And you've noticed that, I'm sure, as we've read through uh, the Lord's Prayer and studied this passage. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So we want to look at verse 12, but we also want to take into account verses 14 and 15. Well, Jesus here speaks to two needs that we have. The first need is the need to ask for God's forgiveness for our sins. You and I have a desperate need to ask for God's forgiveness for our sins. On a daily basis. Now, when we became Christians, when you became a Christian, part of that involves, by the work of the Holy Spirit, a sense of sin. A sense that you are not right with God. A sense that you have offended God. That you and God are alienated from each other. And there is a need to be reconciled. And part of, indeed, the, 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 the largest part, we could argue, of becoming a Christian involves recognizing not just that we feel lost, not just that we feel aimless, not just that we feel like we lack purpose in life, but the fact is that you and I are sinners justly deserving God's wrath and displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy. And God in his grace enables us to see our condition as sinners 
and to ask for God's forgiveness. To repent, which means to have a change in how we think about ourselves and our behavior from justifying ourselves, rationalizing our sins, to recognizing that we have offended an infinitely holy God and that apart from his gracious intervention in Christ, we are hell bound because we justly, we rightly deserve his wrath forever because he is an infinitely holy God. And so we ask his forgiveness. Pray that he would forgive our sins. Now, certainly I think there is a little bit of that here, but Jesus is talking to his disciples and, in effect, talking to those who've already done this. And what Jesus is speaking to primarily is our ongoing daily need of asking for the forgiveness of our sins against God. When you and I, as Christians, as those in Christ's sin, it doesn't mean now we're separated from God as we were when we were not Christians and have a need to be saved all over again. But when we sin, it does create a distance, a breach, a coldness, perhaps we might say, in the relationship, even as it would with another human being. Well, what Jesus is speaking here to, uh, to here is the need for, as children of God, as forgiven, saved Sinners, the need for daily asking God's forgiveness. Now, this brings up, of course, the whole question of the reality of sin. Now, the term that is used here is debts. Uh, an interesting idea. The idea of sin as a, as, as a debt owed, as an obligation uh, that we must uh, render. Um, Paul uses this word in Romans when he says, I am a debtor uh, both to Jews and Gentiles. I have an obligation Toward both, the obligation is to make known to them the gospel. Same term here, this obligation that we have toward God, this this debt. And as we'll see, that's an image for sin that occurs in other places. The scripture uses different pictures in the words it uses for sin. The idea of falling short of a standard, falling short of the mark, uh, for example. But here, the, the picture of sin is that of a debt that we owe. Now, sin is a reality. And we don't do anyone a service in the church if we downplay sin. We don't talk about sin. Well, modern people don't like to hear about sin. Sin's going to make people leave and not come back. Well, sin is the issue. Your sin, my sin before a holy God. If, if, if a church does not talk about sin, it's missing the main point. We can talk about purpose. We can talk about having meaning. We can talk about healthy relationships. But if we don't ever get around to talking about sin... We're missing the big thing, the main point. And so as we look at this passage, we're faced with the reality of sin or debts as Jesus presents it here. Now, sin is something that could be easily uh, misunderstood. I think the Westminster Shorter Catechism question and answer addresses sin succinctly and well. When I was growing up, uh, my parents taught me the catechism. And I, when I went to seminary, I had to relearn the catechism in order to graduate. Uh, but, there, but when I got to seminary, I discovered that there were certain catechism questions and answers that stayed with me. I had forgotten many of them, but the many were still there. One, of course, is the first one. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Well, another one that stuck in my mind is, what is sin? Anybody want to take a stab? What's the catechism? Westminster's shorter, not the children's. The shorter catechism answer. 
Well, the children's too. But what is the, anybody remember the shorter catechism answer? What is sin? Want of conformity. That phrase stuck in your mind, didn't it? Yes. Or transgression of the law of God. Yes, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Now, if you want to challenge, explain that to your five-year-old this afternoon. And I think it's the very convoluted nature of it that made it stick in my mind. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Now, what does that mean? Want there means a failure, a lack. To be in want means to not have something you need. So a want of conformity means a failure to conform to the law of God. In other words, a failure to do what God's law says we ought to do. Example, children, if your mother says to you, you need to clean up your room, and you don't do it, have you disobeyed? Anybody? Children, are you there? Yes, you've disobeyed. Your, your, your parents will let you know that. You disobeyed by not doing something, right? You didn't do something. That's the problem. You sinned. You disobeyed by not doing what you're supposed to do. That's a want of conformity. You didn't conform to what your mother or father told you to do. Now, we can also sin by doing what we're not supposed to do. Any transgression of the law of God. To transgress means to cross the line, to cross the boundary. And so, children, if your mother or father should say, you can play in the yard, but do not cross the street. And you cross the street anyway. Have you disobeyed? Yes, you have. Because you've crossed that line that you were not to cross. By the way, with Adam and Eve, when they ate the fruit, that was a transgression of the law of God, right? God said, do not eat the fruit. They did eat the fruit. Now, for you adults, sin of omission a want of conformity. You're supposed to have your car registered and so forth. A little tag says you're up to date. Well, suppose you forget it or misplace it and the date comes and goes. And the next thing you know, you're driving an unregistered car or out of date. Well, you've broken the law by not doing what you're supposed to do. That's a want of conformity to the laws of the state of Georgia. Or suppose the speed limit says 70 and you're going 85. You thought Interstate 85 meant 85. So you're going 85 and it said 70. And the, police pulls you, the policeman pulls you over and informs you you have transgressed the laws of the state of Georgia. Well, so it is with, uh, with the law of God. We can sin both by not doing what we're supposed to do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. None of us does that on any given day. We all fall short of that one. It can also be to do what God has said not to do, to transgress the law. You shall not steal. If you steal, you've done something God said not to. To do, And so it helps to think of sin in these two categories, what we sins of omission, what we don't do that we should do, sins of commission, what we do, what God has told us when we do what God has told us not to do. Now, we're talking about sin here, uh, the reality of it daily. You and I fail to do what God calls us to do. We don't love him with all our being. We don't love our neighbor as ourself. And in many other ways, we fail to do what God's law tells us to do. And we also sin against God every day by doing things that God has told us not to do. As Christians. And so we have this need every day to go to God and say, please, Lord, forgive my sins. 
We had a man in the church I used to be in in South Carolina. He always prayed, Lord, forgive our sin debts, which reflects the language here of the Lord's Prayer. We need daily to ask forgiveness, not in order to be saved again. We're saved as God's people. We're secure in that. But because we have sinned against God and because of the need to restore fellowship with him, the joy of our salvation in him, we do need to seek God's forgiveness. But that's the first need that Jesus addresses here. And there's a second need that he addresses here as well. And that is we need to forgive the sins of others. We need to ask for God's forgiveness of our sins that debt against him that we incur, we also need to ask for, or rather to forgive, the sins of those around us who have sinned against us. And indeed, that's what the verse says. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, here, and as 14 and 15 go on, uh, it seems to indicate that God's forgiving our sins is somehow contingent upon, based upon, our forgiving others. Now, that seems sort of strange. Has God set up some sort of tit-for-tat arrangement? You forgive, I'll forgive you. You don't forgive, I won't forgive you. Seems uncharacteristically works-oriented, doesn't it? Or Or even worse, that somehow by forgiving others, we've earned God's forgiveness. That somehow God owes us because I forgave somebody else. Is that what the Scriptures are saying here? Well, let's take a look at this. Uh, And not only... Verses 14 and 15, but you may be familiar with Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant a few chapters on in Matthew chapter 18. What I want to do is go to that parable because I think in that parable Jesus sheds a great deal of light on what this verse means in the Lord's Prayer and what his explanation means in verses 14 and 15. The parable was told in response to his disciple, Peter, who comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Oh, seven times. That long-suffering, forbearing spirit of Peter that he's willing to forgive someone seven times, right? And Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, Peter, but seventy times seven. Now, again, the point is not here an exact figure. The point is, Peter, it's much, much more than just limiting it to a certain number. Well, the eighth time, you're not obligated to forgive. Jesus says it's much bigger than that, and he tells a parable to explain. So look with me at Matthew 18, 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. 
And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, Jesus' parable to Peter is illuminating, certainly for Peter's answer. He's basically saying, Peter, would you like for the Lord to take that approach with you? The eighth time and it's hell for you? Well, of course not. But it also sheds light on the passage that we are studying here, verses 14 and 15. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The point is not a mechanical correlation. The point is, how can we, the point of the parable is, as well as this passage, how can we who have experienced ourselves the astounding grace of God in the face of that infinite debt that we had against the Lord, how can we then turn around and refuse to forgive someone a paltry debt by comparison that they owe us. Or to put it this way, you and I have sinned against the Lord in countless ways. He is a being of infinite holiness, infinite majesty, and we have incurred infinite guilt before God. The worst things, the worst, the most heinous crimes that someone could commit against you pale in comparison to your guilt before Almighty God. Do you believe that? Part of our problem with forgiveness is we really don't believe that. Because people can do some pretty hateful and even awful, even horrendous things to us and to those we love. But do you really believe that what you have done, how you have sinned against God, is far worse than the worst that, the worst that any human being could do to you? Because you see, if you don't believe that, forgiveness can become very difficult. But if you do believe that, then we begin to make sense of what Jesus is saying here. You see, the, the servant owed his master millions. And he said, I'll pay you, just give me time. Not a chance. This guy couldn't repay him. Not if he had a thousand years on this earth. He would never repay the kind of debt he owed. And the master forgave the debt. Turns around, fellow servant owes him a few, a few dollars. He maybe lent him a couple of weeks ago. He says, just give me a little more time. I'll pay you back. And he shakes him no and has him thrown into prison. You see, that's us when we refuse to forgive another person. God has forgiven us this infinite debt. How can we in turn hold someone accountable for a transgression against us that by comparison is much smaller? It's the point of Jesus' parable, and it's the key to understanding what Jesus is saying here. I like the way John Stott puts it in his commentary, talking about the parable as it relates to the Lord's Prayer. He writes, once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear, by comparison, extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves we have minimized our own. It is the disparity between the size of the debts, which is the main point of the parable of the unmerciful servant. Our forgiving others does not earn the right to be forgiven by God. It is rather that God forgives only the penitent. Only the repentant. And one of the chief evidences of a true repentance is that we have a forgiving spirit toward others. 
So another way to put what Jesus is saying here is if you will not forgive others, you are displaying either a hardened heart as a Christian or quite possibly an unregenerate heart. that You yourself have never experienced the overwhelming, forgiving grace of God in Christ. If you have, how can you then not forgive others? That's what Jesus is saying here. That's the point, as the parable makes plain, that lies behind this teaching in the Lord's Prayer. Now, it's very easy in, in, a, in an intellectual sense to agree with that. But forgiveness isn't just an intellectual abstract idea, is it? Forgiveness is one of those things in the Christian life that really uh, is at the very point where the rubber hits the road. It, it comes into play almost daily in our lives, in our interaction with a husband, with a wife, with our children, children, with your parents, with co-workers, with classmates, with neighbors. Anytime we interact with people, the whole question of forgiveness is going before very long to come into play. However, it seems that uh, a refusal to forgive is one of those respectable sins in the church. You know, there are sins that we, we gasp in horror. <gasps> Funny how pride often isn't one of them, but it seemed to bother Jesus the most. And forgiveness or lack of forgiveness is one of those respectable sins that doesn't start tongues wagging and yet obviously offends God greatly. What, when, uh, several weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go to Twin Lakes Fellowship at Twin Lakes Conference Center uh, just south of Jackson, Mississippi. It's owned by First Presbyterian Church of Jackson. Uh, Twin Lakes Fellowship is a ministerial fraternal for the purpose of promoting church planting, church health, through the ordinary means of grace. That would be the preaching of the Word of God, the administration of the sacraments, prayer. In other words, what God gives us in Scripture, rather than coming up with new packaged programs that are going to you know, create the next megachurch or whatever, using the means that God has given for promoting the growth and the health of the local congregation. There's a tradition with the Twin Lakes Fellowship that in the First evening, the opening service, uh, the preacher is Douglas Kelly. Dr. Kelly uh, was my systematic theology teacher at Reformed Seminary in Jackson. Also had a class with him on Southern Presbyterian history and theology. That's kind of a tradition that Dr. Kelly preaches the first service. And Dr. Kelly preached that first service on forgiveness. And in the course of the sermon, he gave some objections people have to forgiving others. And I found them interesting. Perhaps you will, too. Some objections. Why we don't forgive. Number one, if I forgive someone who hurt me, I'll later be taken advantage of. They might do it again. And the answer to that is yes, you might be taken advantage of. Uh, but you give that hurt uh, to the Lord and entrust justice to him and you forgive. Number two, this is a curious one. To forgive someone would lower my moral standard. Dr. Kelly rightly observes, God forgives us for Christ's sake. Does that not lower his moral standard? No, it doesn't. God in no way lowers his moral standard. And when we forgive someone, it is for the sake of Christ. It is for the sake of what he has done for us. We're not compromising on what's right or wrong. We're not somehow complicit in in wrongdoing if we forgive someone. After all, God has forgiven us. God's not lowered his moral standard by any means because he forgives us on the basis of Christ's death. Number three, third objection. It's embarrassing to ask for forgiveness. They'll know I'm in the wrong. They know it anyway. That's why there's this conflict, well, this breach. 
Number four, well, it's hard to forgive. Yes, it is. As Dr. Kelly put it, take the hand of Jesus and go forward. First uh, Peter chapter two, uh, verse 21 says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And in fact, as you know, he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Take the hand of Jesus and go forward. It is hard to forgive. It, it can be very hard to forgive. And forgiveness isn't something that comes easily, lightly, or even quickly. Real forgiveness. And you might have to re-forgive. It is hard. But by God's grace, it is also possible. And a fifth objection. But he hasn't apologized to me yet. But if you don't go ahead and forgive anyway, a certain hardness and bitterness will take root in your soul. If you wait for others to apologize, to ask for your forgiveness before in your heart, at least you forgive and let that go. You can become a bitter, a hardened, even an angry person. So some objections that are raised. And of course, all of them fall in the light of Scripture and in the light of God's grace in Christ. Well, let me finish with just some brief uh, kind of bullet point review or application here to think through some of the, the, the implications of this. First of all, repentance must be a daily part of the Christian life. You don't repent once, you're saved, and then you go on. Daily, we come back to the cross, we repent of our sins, we ask God's grace, His forgiveness, pray for His grace to help us to obey Him in areas where we have disobeyed Him, and we move forward. But repentance, asking God's forgiveness, is a daily part of the Christian life. Therefore, and the flip side of that, really, number two, self-righteousness has no place in the Christian life. In other words, we can't look down on others, not fellow Christians, not non-Christians. What do you have, brother or sister in Christ, that you have not received, that God hasn't given you in Christ? After all, our very confession is we're sinners in need of God's grace. How can we have self-righteousness along with that? How can we look down our noses at the sins of others when we ourselves know our own sin? If we are on our knees daily asking God's forgiveness, recognizing, like Paul, I am the chief of sinners, it gives us a grace and a patience and a forbearance with those around us who sin and who may sin against us. You know, we're not to be like the Pharisee who who looked at the sinner and said, thank God I'm not like this man. But rather would look at them as someone who, too, like us, needs God's forgiveness, needs God's grace. And we also recognize that apart from God's grace, you and I would be right and maybe were right there, too. So self-righteousness has no place in the life of the Christian. Jesus will address this further later on in the Sermon on the Mount. Number three, we need a sense of the weight of our guilt before God. We need to pray that God would weigh us down with a sense of our sin, that he might lift us up with the riches of his grace. Because the greater your sense of sin, the greater your sense of the heinousness, the sheer wickedness of your sin against God, the greater will be your delight and joy in the grace and forgiveness of God. Remember Jesus said of the woman, she loves much because she's been forgiven much. The more our sense of forgiveness, the greater our love for and delight in Christ. 
Number four, kind of getting back to our text here directly, by God's grace, we can and must forgive others. We have received an immense forgiveness, far greater than any forgiveness we will be called upon to extend. But how can we not extend forgiveness when we delight in and are thankful for the forgiveness we ourselves have received? Number five, joy in the Christian life requires forgiveness. If you are bitter toward someone, maybe someone in this room, maybe someone in your family, if you are hardened toward them, to that degree, your joy in Christ, your joy in his salvation is diminished. Because there is joy found in letting go a debt someone owes us, a sin against us, to forgive them. Maybe they've asked you for your forgiveness. Maybe they haven't. And you do need to forgive them for your sake, if not for theirs. And if they have asked your forgiveness... How much more is it incumbent on you? How much more are you obligated to forgive the one who has asked you, has apologized and said, please forgive me, and yet you're still bitter and hostile toward them? How can that be, brother or sister in Christ? And then sixth, close fellowship with God and answered prayer call for forgiveness of others. In fact, when Dr. Kelly preached that sermon, the point of the sermon was, A spirit of unforgiveness hinders our prayers. And he preached from Mark uh, chapter 11, where Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Did you catch that? Whenever you stand praying, forgive. And the whole point of Dr. Kelly's sermon was that we often struggle with a life of unanswered prayers because we refuse to forgive. And that by forgiving, we open up the gateway of God's blessing to answer our prayers and our joy in answered prayer and our joy in him. Again, not a mechanical thing, but he raises the very logical question. Am I seeing unanswered prayer in my life because I'm refusing to forgive others when they've sinned against me? Whenever you stand praying, forgive. Maybe that's a problem for you. Maybe you're thinking, boy, I've got a lot of prayer, a lot of things I'm praying for, and there are not answers there. I don't see anything happening. Are you bitter towards someone? Is there someone, maybe who's even asked you to forgive them and you haven't? Maybe that's what's clogging the line. Maybe that's what's blocking the answers to prayers, to your prayers. And so it's something to think about. Dear friends, as Jesus teaches in the Lord's Prayer. We daily need God's forgiveness. And when we ask for it in Christ, God grants us his forgiveness. And if God forgives us, how can we not forgive others? Let's pray. Our Father, we pray for your forgiveness, for our lack of forgiveness of others. Father, it can be hard. Anger, bitterness can be powerful things. Lord, we can think we've forgiven and we realize we really haven't and we need to go back. But Lord, we thank you that you give grace. And we pray, Father, that we would be people who really have experienced your forgiveness and are regenerate, are new creatures in Christ, and that that's demonstrated by our forgiveness of others. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be like Jesus in this way to be ready to forgive those even who are doing the the worst of things to us. 
And we pray, Father, that in that we would know the joy of being like him, the joy of salvation, the power uh, of forgiving others, and the power that we see in our own lives by your grace and by your spirit as we are such people. Father, that we would have the blessing of answered prayer, walking with you, forgiving others. Lord, keep us from becoming angry and bitter and unforgiving, but rather filled with joy, being willing to leave injustices in your hands to forgive others. Lord, forgive us our debts, even as we forgive others their debts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.